Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Just for being a Getting In listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice by going to www.audible.com college. From Slate and Panoply, this is Getting In, a podcast series about the path to college. I'm your host, Julie Lithcott-Hames, and joining me today is Getting In expert Josh Steckel. Happy New Year, Josh! Happy New Year, Julie. It's great to be here. Glad to hear it. For those who don't remember, Josh is the college counselor at the Brooklyn School for Collaborative Studies, which is a public school in New York City. He's also the author of a wonderful book called Hold Fast to Dreams, which follows first-generation students on the path to and through college, and it's just out in paperback. I'm wondering, Josh, how did writing this book and reflecting on the paths those students took affect how you're advising your current students today? I think it's changed me a lot. I think that it gives an inside look at the lived experience of a host of, of kids from the New York City Public Schools so that we have you know, a real on-the-ground sense of what it's like to go through this process. And, and I think in, in many ways, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about participating in this podcast. It's a very similar set of stories, and, or at least a very similar structure to the, the kind of storytelling that we're doing. And I think it, it really allows um, folks who are going through the process and, and people who aren't in the process to, to identify with this experience and, and to feel um, empowered and validated. Well, speaking of our students, we've got a few voice memo updates from some of our Getting In seniors. Hey, everyone. This is Alessandra Perra. Hi, guys. It's Jordana. Hi. It's Alice checking in. I finally got a phone, so now I'm finally able to do a voice memo on my cell phone again, and yay. Well, it sounds like over the break, they found time to relax. Over break, I went into the city and I saw a Broadway show. I saw two movies. I hung out with my friends. I did see Star Wars on Christmas Eve, which was so awesome. I love the old movies. My family all went together, and we did, like, the typical Jewish Christmas. We had Chinese food and saw a movie. Um, it was really nice. I was in Florida for about uh, 10 days, and I vowed to play golf every day. Um, I tried to play as much as my grandpa, my family, my, my dad, and my cousin, my grandpa. We played easily seven out of 10 days. And the others, I just said, I'm going to go out, whether it's 4 p.m. in the afternoon, I can only get nine in, or... I got 27 in um, playing golf, so it's kind of therapeutic for me, so that was great. Oh, I went bouldering, which is like rock climbing without a harness, and it's cool. And uh, I made a gingerbread house with my mom, (laughs) Um, did a lot of reading. Right now I'm reading The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway, which is so beautiful. And so I can totally see why it's classic. And they buckled down and finished their applications. I also finally sent in my NYU application because I was too afraid to send it in. (laughs) I also just got an acceptance letter to DeSales University, uh, one of my safeties, and then Pace University with a pretty good scholarship. So that was very exciting. So most of my applications, all but one of the eight, were due January 1st. So I uh, submitted those, um, but most of my break was spent perfecting them and refining them, making sure all my recommendations were in. I also, because I'm applying to some places as an intended music major, I had to make sure that 
my music supplements were lined up. Um, so that wasn't kind of added complication. Um, I applied to Vanderbilt University, Early Decision 2, which is fantastic, as well as Emory. So I worked on those essays and finished those up over the break. I finished applying to college, which is so exciting. I'm so happy it's all over. Um, I had to sort of just review all of my supplements, and then once that was done, I just paid them all at once, and uh, everything was in on the same day, and I think I applied like two days before the end of the year, which was just, it was such a weight off my shoulders. And I started to look ahead at what 2016 will bring. As far as the beginning of 2016 goes, I am very worried, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm, but also excited. I'm excited about 2016. It's been, it's been, uh, it's been good so far. I mean, all four days of it. Um, I'm excited. I mean, it's my graduation year. There's a lot that's going to change in my life this year. Um, and I, I embrace change. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to go somewhere new, wherever that ends up being. I'm feeling about the year ahead. Um, I'm a little, uh, you know, of course, not getting to Duke was a little bit of a blow, but I'm ready to move on. I have moved on, I think. I won't hear back for a little while, but that's just the way it is. And, uh, everything will everything will be okay. I am going to be graduating this year. I'm going to be in college this year. I'm going to be, you know, meeting new friends and saying goodbye to old ones this year. And I'm going to be dorming and I'm going to be away from my family and I'm going to turn 18, which is crazy. And I'm going to like be an actual person this year. And I'm just so excited because that's like, I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to go and leave high school and sort of not never look back, but you know, like only look back occasionally because I really just I am so excited about this year I'm really excited I'm picturing myself at Skidmore right now <laughs> I know I've mentioned like 45 different colleges at this point but I'm really uh I don't know I think that I think that I'll just be somewhere where I'm happy I'm picturing myself happy this fall and that's it Wow, it is so great to hear those voices, huh, Josh? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Hearing August in particular um, just sounding so enthusiastic and, and hopeful and forward-looking, that's really wonderful. That's, it feels like she's in, in a pretty different place than when we first met her. I was having the same thought. It was almost, I mean, I think it is the case. We met her, obviously, within the context of applying to college. And the podcast starting, I, in some ways, feel as if we've just heard August's real voice for the first time, not a voice laden with the pressure and stress of applying to college, but August having emerged from that process, who can imagine herself being a person again, which is, I believe, how she put it. It was so adorable, so lovely to to hear August really speaking as herself with with such optimism and excitement. And we hope the same is true for for the others. Josh, we didn't hear from Jonathan. Can you give us a sense of how Jonathan is doing? Sure. Jonathan's doing great. We had an intense two weeks before the vacation began. He did really tremendous work in finishing his personal essay, um, which I think turned out to be an incredibly moving piece that I I think he really kind of found the kernel of in his initial conversations with you. And, you know, I, I think that then he discovered that even after you finish submitting your applications, there's a whole lot more work to do. So we had to we had to spend a, a challenging few days getting through some of the early financial aid forms that that students need to do in order to ensure that that their need is met. So the the form we spent a lot of time on is called the CSS profile, and so he just got that in. The big news for Jonathan is that he decided to um, 
to submit his application to Muhlenberg College as an early decision application. Hmm. Tell me more about that. What what went into that decision? How did he arrive at it? And what do you think it portends in terms of his options going forward? So one of the really nice things about um, Muhlenberg for our school is that we have a long-term partnership with the with the college. And, and they visit us every year, and, and they visit us early on. Um, one of the counselors there, whose name is Eric, met with our students, and, and he and Jonathan really connected. And Jonathan, along with some of the other students that felt really strongly about the college after speaking with Eric, petitioned me to help them organize and fund a trip to the campus. And so Jonathan um, recruited 10 of our, our kids and, and worked with the college to organize a day where they would interview, where they would spend time in class and eat in the dining hall. And I think that Jonathan came back feeling a really strong sense of belonging, a sense that the adults that he met were really invested in knowing him as an individual, and then also just a sense that this was this beautiful open space that it would be wonderful to study and grow in. That's fantastic. You know, listening to you talk about Jonathan and thinking about the conversations we've had uh, reminds me of my time as a freshman dean at Stanford, where I worked with a number of students who were the first in their family to attend college. Fifteen percent of our undergraduates were first gen. And, you know, what I was struck by was the extent to which they were often making their own reality not reliant upon parents or connections or systems in place into which they could just slot themselves, um, but really accustomed to having to figure it out for themselves. Um, I don't mean to be overly romantic about it. I don't mean to romanticize it. I'm just trying to um, convey a sense of admiration for kids like Jonathan, who sees the opportunity in front of them and say, hey, I'm going to organize a trip to Muhlenberg. I'm going to make this visit happen. I'm going to bring some of my friends along. Uh, I really admire that. And I think that kind of uh, roll up your sleeves and do it mindset uh, and ethic is going to serve Jonathan tremendously well wherever he goes. I agree wholeheartedly. And I, I working with Jonathan has been really inspiring and as it is for working with lots of, of my kids. And so it's, it's definitely something that, that keeps me going. Absolutely. So you mentioned that Jonathan's financial aid forms are were sort of the final challenge or are still a challenge. Can you say something about that place we're in right now with regard to financial aid and scholarship applications for kids who have to go that route? What are the challenges associated with getting those forms in and the deadlines and so on? Yeah. I remember when, when I first moved to the public schools, one of the big surprises for me was realizing that it really wasn't over at the end of December, that in fact the process just kept going and there were there were more and more challenges to support students in getting through. For students applying to private colleges, uh, they're often required to do a form called the CSS Profile. That's a service offered by the College Board that requires students to provide a, a lot more information about their family's income situation than the federal government's standard financial aid form, which is the FAFSA. And at the same time, they're also scrambling to find scholarship applications and opportunities. And so it's a real balancing act. And I think that it's what I try to support students with the most is to continue to have energy to persist through the process, to stay strong and focused on, on what kind of brought them to where they're at. Jonathan is fortunate to have you helping him out. And uh, of course, most students, I think, applying to college are, in fact, applying for financial aid and scholarship of some kind. So we're really talking about an issue that uh, a whole lot of folks can relate to. It actually brings us to our first listener question today, which is about financial aid. Becky Austin, right here in the Bay Area, Oakland, California, emailed us. 
She has a ninth grader and an 11th grader, and she's active on the college committee at her kid's school, a public high school with 2,000 students. As our parents work on the FAFSA and CSS profile, they're finding the forms to be fairly complicated. This is especially true of the CSS profile. We don't have anyone at the school to advise on this. I have looked on the internet and found that Khan Academy has a tutorial that looks useful, and the College Board has an instructional video. Do you have other resources you can recommend? Josh, what can you recommend for Becky? Uh, So maybe I can address the FAFSA first, and just to make sure that everyone understands, the FAFSA is the federal government's financial aid form. It stands for the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, and it's sort of the master key to all all financial aid. All students need to complete it in order to qualify for any kind of aid. And there are some really terrific resources for FAFSA, and we should start with those. I'd say first, uh, there's a wonderful guide that is actually specifically focused on the adults who are helping students to complete the FAFSA. It's, it's located at a website called understandingfafsa.org. And I think that the other really important thing f- for Becky um, is to note that nationally there's, there's a movement called College Goal Sunday. You can find out if there's a College Goal Sunday event near you at collegegoalsundayusa.org, where volunteers who are financial aid professionals work with students and families in a hands-on way to ensure that they, they get their FAFSA done. And so those are, those are really, really important resources. I think the other thing that's critical for Becky to know, and certainly, you know, we began talking about juniors on our last episode, there's a pretty big shift to the FAFSA that's coming down the pipe. Um, it sounds crazy. The language to describe it is not at all useful. It's We're going to begin using what's called prior, prior year data. And so that's like a technical term that, that really means that starting next year, Um, families can use the income information that they have in the fall of their child's senior year. So the confusing bit is that typically when when a student goes to college, their aid package is based on the family's prior year income information. So for our group this year, that's their 2015 income information. Prior, prior year would mean that this group could actually use the income information that they have now before they've even been able to file taxes. They'd be able to use their 2014 information. So for for juniors and and younger students, that's going to be the case. The FAFSA will be open as of October 1st, and students and families will be able to use prior, prior year data. But this year, it opened as of January 1st, and it is an important thing to get done early. In many states, the order in which students and families submit FAFSA will determine their eligibility for for state grant aid. And so it's critical to get the FAFSA done early. Okay. The CSS CSS profile. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it's a long answer, unfortunately. (laughs) So the CSS profile is a much trickier form. It's much trickier in part because it asks for a lot more information about families' economic situation. And it's it's pages. It's it's about a dozen um, electronic pages. Um, it's administered by the college board, and, and that makes it a little bit different as a form also. It means actually that it, that students and families have to pay to submit the form. I think it's a little bit of a racket, um, which is important to note. But, but students from low-income families do automatically qualify for waivers uh, in submitting the CSS profile. What makes it hard is first that students and families really need to be aware of deadlines that colleges set 
for the CSS profile. Often, they're as early as February 1st for regular decision applicants. And for all of our students who've submitted early, um, the deadlines are typically at the same time as the early decision application is required. The, the CSS profile is, is tricky in two other ways. One is for students where there is a parent who is non-custodial. It's really important to know that the CSS profile requires the non-custodial parent to fill out his or her own version of the CSS profile. If the non-custodial parent is unreachable, is not part of the child's life, it's really, really important to know also that it's possible to request to waive that requirement. And it's important to communicate directly with the college to understand how one goes about requesting that waiver. Typically what you do and what I'll do for some of my students is write what's called a third-party letter to testify to the fact that, that a parent is absent or is not able or available to provide that separate information. The other thing that's challenging about the CSS is that they work, the College Board has a service called IDOC or IDOC. And this is how all income forms are submitted. It's an online portal, and students and families have to scan or fax in their documents directly through IDOC. And students then have an online portal that they can check regularly to ensure that all of the, all of the items have been received. The resources that Becky has already identified, the College Board's webinar about the CSS profile and Khan Academy's tutorial, they're really the best things that are out there for walking families through the form. The other site that I go to a lot is finaid, F-I-N-A-I-D.org. It's a resource developed by this really wonderful smart guy named Mark Kantrowitz, and it answers pretty much any question I have ever had about financial aid. So it's a great place to be able to go. The very last thing that I would say that Amy kind of referred to earlier on in one of our uh, episodes was that a lot of times admissions officers and financial aid officers don't see themselves as gatekeepers so much as counselors. And, and it's really a good idea to reach out to financial aid counselors for support completing these forms and completing the CSS profile in particular. At many colleges, counselors will be more than happy to, to offer hands-on support. For many of my students, actually, they, they rely on counselors at their institutions to do that with them each year when they have to renew FAFSA or the CSS. Wow, Josh, thank you for walking us through this. And I sense that there's so much more to say on these subjects. Let me ask you this. For those who, like me, hadn't heard of CSS uh, prior to this question, I've, I've, obvi- I've heard of FAFSA. I know about FAFSA. I filled FAFSA out one day long ago. Um, why would somebody do CSS? Is it required by some colleges? Is it optional? Is it considered, you know, because it asks more questions, it's sort of a better financial picture and profile, more likely to lead one to receiving aid? What, what's, the, what's optional here? What's required? as between FAFSA and CSS? So FAFSA is required. FAFSA is, FAFSA is, you can think of it as like the master key for financial aid. You don't get anything unless you get a FAFSA in. That's the bottom line. The CSS is not optional, but it's only required by certain institutions. So the institutions that use CSS, you have to do it in order to get any kind of aid. It's a requirement. It's worth noting that some colleges, in addition to CSS or in place of CSS, will have their own individual institutional aid application. Fewer and fewer colleges are doing that. Um, I will absolutely say that for many of my students and families, one reaction is often like, why do they need to know that? Or, oh my god, this form is so incredibly long and intimidating. 
it is absolutely a requirement at many institutions, and, and without submitting it, uh, students will not be afforded the aid that they may be eligible for. FAFSA typically uh, indicates eligibility for government grant and loan programs, predominantly for the Pell Grant program and for Stafford loans. And the CSS profile is, is typically about unlocking institutional aid. And the, the maximum amount that a student can get from the Pell Grant program isn't nearly enough to cover the cost of attending any private college in, in the country. And so that institutional aid is really critical for, for affordability. You've really proved the point you made a few minutes ago, which is for the vast number of students applying for financial aid and scholarships, it really isn't over at the end of December, this college application thing. It is ongoing. It requires persistence you know, guidance, good resources. Thanks so much for that really good information on FAFSA and CSS. Up next, we've got an email on a different subject from Beth Pottle in North Carolina. Hi, thank you for the wonderful, helpful podcast. I also really enjoyed the book. Here's my question. My daughter applied early decision to her first choice school on the November 1st deadline. She has heard nothing from them. She did not receive an acknowledgement that her application was received. She did attempt to call but got voicemail and has sent one email. Still no response. What should we do? The school would be a very good fit for my daughter, so I do not want to hurt her chances of getting in by stepping in to voice my concern. Any advice would be appreciated. Thank you. Yikes. Josh, what do you think this mom or daughter should do? This is this is a little hard. I think that really the most likely thing that has happened here is that this young woman's application is probably incomplete. If she submitted an early decision application with a November 1st deadline, I don't know of any institution that doesn't notify students or give a decision by December 15th. So I have to assume that what is most likely the case is that her her application probably wasn't reviewed because it wasn't complete. And it's worth noting here that this is, it's not uncommon. I I would say one of the main reasons that my students don't get in (laughs) to places is because they they don't realize that they haven't actually completed their application. And it's, it's important to note also that that's not so hard to understand. Completing an application requires a lot of different people or organizations to submit a lot of different things. What I would say to to Beth and to her daughter first is that it is almost always the case at this moment in our technological history that students get an email receipt when their application has been received. And almost all colleges have an online portal system where you can get the most up-to-date status on the student's application. What's probably going to happen for the student is that the application will be pushed into the regular decision pool and it will await completion before it gets reviewed. As for Beth's question about, you know, is it okay for me to jump in? First, I want to say it it really kind of stinks that the school hasn't been responsive here. And absolutely, yes, I think that if, if her child is is struggling with this and, and, and doesn't feel like she's able to get the answer that she needs, it's understandable that the parent would want to jump in here and make sure that, that she has a clear picture on on the status of her child's application. I don't that will have no bearing whatsoever on on admission for her child. Okay. You know, these days I find myself thinking the process of applying to college should be easier than when I applied back in nineteen eighty four because all I had was paper and envelopes and stamps and and now we have all of this technology, but I got to say, when I hear these stories and I hear them all the time, it feels as if 
this is an example of how technology has just complicated things. There are so many steps and so many boxes. You know, I'll confess in my own house with respect to my own kid, I find myself thinking I'd rather him apply to five schools and be able to track all of that himself than apply to 15 schools but need a tremendous amount of assistance just keeping track of all of those particular details. Maybe that'll help more kids pull back and say, you know what, I'm not going to go with that scattershot approach to 15 to 20 schools. I'm going to hone in on the five or seven or 10 that I feel are the best fit for me. I'm going to throw my eggs in those baskets. Maybe that's actually a much more rational choice than we realize. I agree with you, Julie. Uh, I think that's an incredibly important point. One way that I often go with my students and certainly try to help our parents think through is that there's a lot of things that we can, we can think about how to scaffold for kids uh, rather than do for them. Um, so even with like, in this case with Beth and, and her daughter, um, I'll often, or with Jonathan, I just did this the other day actually, where we talk through a phone call first and, and then he goes and makes it. Um, that can be, um, that, can, that can often help kids have a stronger sense of agency when they do need a little boost to, of confidence or courage to make something happen. Yeah, that's a great example. Role modeling how the conversation might take place then letting him do the work of it. It's a, it's a beautiful example. And I do that with my own kids as well who, by the way, like many in their generation, seem to hate making phone calls. Yeah, totally. A different topic, a different podcast. But anyway, well, uh, we've got a voice memo now from a high school student in Los Angeles who actually uh, epitomizes, I think, the example of um, a kid who's really taking the bull by the horns and, and organizing things for herself as far as we can tell. Let's take a listen to Sarah from Los Angeles. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I'm a junior in Los Angeles I have a question specifically about community college. I'm taking a lot of APs right now and just doing okay in them. So I have an average GPA, which I've come to terms with because I'm just trying to challenge myself. And I'm also taking community college classes concurrently. So I should be done with my first year of community college by the time I finish high school. I'm really dead set and I really want to major in sociology and probably minor in a more broad and common field such as economics or psychology. And I know that the return on my investment for college, for a four-year traditional college, is not going to be so great and that it's going to be expensive. And I'm not really looking for the traditional college experience. So I was wondering, of course, I'm going to have to swallow my pride a little bit to do this, if it would be a better idea for me to take that extra year of community college after high school and then go transfer so that I have two years at a traditional four-year college? Would it be financially worth it? And am I going to be missing something, not getting the full college experience? Thank you. Josh, what do you think? I think, wow. Um, yeah. Sarah sounds like a really impressive young woman. Yeah. I, you know, the first thing that I want to do is just sort of clarify for our listeners that what Sarah's doing in taking uh, classes at a community college concurrently, she said, with her her high school course load, is often referred to as as dual enrollment or as early college, and it it, it means that she's potentially earning some college credits while she's a high school student, and I, I think that. Dual enrollment opportunities can be really valuable for students. It can be a great way potentially to earn some college credits for students while they're still in high school. 
Uh, it can be a great way to get an authentic experience of what it's like to be a college student, to build knowledge, and, and to spend time on a campus. And they're not uncommon. Uh, here in New York City, the City University of New York runs a really amazing set of programs called College Now. Um, and there are many four-year and community colleges that partner with local schools to offer those kinds of opportunities. My gut in hearing from Sarah is that if I have some advice, it sounds like she's a real committed, head-down student who has a really well-articulated goal and target for her, for her studies. And the only thing that I would be afraid of her missing is just the opportunity to stop and look around every once in a while. What I hear from my students most often is that the things that have defined their later lives and often transformed their sense of themselves are things that they never expected to happen, things that weren't part of the plan, and that sometimes those things that you, you, you didn't include in your pre-planning are, are the most wonderful and the most important. That was so beautifully put. You know, one of the things that struck me about Sarah's question was when she said, I'll need to swallow my pride if she makes the choice of doing the second year of community college and then transferring after effectively those two years to a four-year college. And I just want to say, Sarah, and to anyone else contemplating community college, in community college, there is nothing about it that constitutes swallowing your pride, if I may say so. The community college experience is a wonderful facet of the American higher education landscape. Excellent teaching often happens there. So many students get their start at community college and actually end up having a more rewarding, more focused undergraduate experience when they transfer because of that work that they did in community college. So please don't think of it as swallowing your pride, Sarah. I think it's actually a sign of wisdom that you've chosen this path for yourself. Putting my freshman dean hat on, when you ask the question, will I be missing out not getting the full college experience if you do two years at community college and then transfer for the final two years? I'm going to say Yes and no. It kind of depends on what you mean by the full college experience. Yeah, you won't be a freshman at that college. I wouldn't want to transfer to a place where everyone made their friends freshman year and you're going to have a hard time breaking in socially to the community if you weren't there as a freshman. What you do gain by transferring in is you arrive as a junior with tremendous focus, with, you know, as someone who's really immersed herself in sociology, econ, psychology, whatever it ends up being. You arrive dedicated and focused. You have a sense of yourself as an intellectual being. You, um, you'll find yourself very likely ahead of the game when it comes to knowing who you are and what you want out of that that four-year degree, ultimately. Probably much better equipped to talk with faculty. I know many, many students who have chosen this path and have thrived. And I'll circle back to you know what I think Josh was saying when he was saying, wow, which is Sarah, you've given us a pretty clear sense of who you are and how you go about doing things and what matters to you. Go in the direction of your own intentions. You don't need our permission to do so, but I think what you're hearing from both of us is tremendous thumbs up encouragement. Without a doubt. All right, Josh. Well, as always, great advice, really sound and thoughtful advice for our students, for our listeners, for their parents, etc. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate your being here. Thank you so much, Julie. All right. And I want to thank our listeners, Becky, Beth, and Sarah, for your terrific questions. And I want to give a special shout out this week to everyone who's left us a comment on iTunes. Seriously, those comments, they're making our day. Thank you. 
There are lots of ways you can send us your questions and comments. We're on Twitter at gettinginpod. That's all one word, gettinginpod. Or send us an email or voice memo to our email address. That's gettingin at slate.com. And there's always our hotline where you can leave a message. That number, for those who don't mind making phone calls, is 929-999-4353. Getting In is a production of Slate and Panoply Media. Michelle Siegel is our producer. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. And Panoply's chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julie Lifcott-Hames. And remember, it's not just about getting into a brand name school. It's about finding the right fit. Getting In is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them on a bunch of different devices, like iPhones, Android, Kindle, or pretty much any other MP3 player. One book you might try out from Audible is Beyond Measure, rescuing an overscheduled, overtested, underestimated generation. Author and filmmaker Vicki Abelese uses real-life examples to offer solutions to problems she laid out in her very popular 2010 documentary, Race to Nowhere. Turns out, scores rise when teachers reduce students' workloads. And schools that emphasize depth over test prep find students more attentive, inventive, and ready to thrive. If you want to listen to Beyond Measure or many other books, Audible has it. With more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audible.com college. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash college. And use the promo code college.